Thank you, Alex. Food for the soul. Amen? It's our time for teaching now, so I encourage you, if you would, if you've got a copy of God's Word, open it up. Revelation chapter 18. As has been our habit now, the last several months, we are going through, called it a tour through the book of Revelation, the things which are future. We have just gone verse by verse through this book, and with a couple of things in mind, I wanted to study it perhaps as you would study it at home, to give you kind of a reference as we put to work our series, How to Get the Most from Your Time in the Word. And so we've done that, we've helped you to cross-reference and maybe get a handle on the chronology of this book, which is really what we want to do. And so as we continue, we find ourselves uh, last week beginning chapter 18 in the book of Revelation. And we began to look at the economics of the tribulation time. Tribulation time is the seven years that immediately follow the rapture of the church. Uh, Just as we've mentioned many times, there's nothing really that stands in between the rapture of the church and today. We believe that it is imminent, particularly as we see what happens is happening in the Middle East. We know that uh, the coming of our Savior for the church is very soon. And so the things we're going to talk about today would occur in the seven years that would immediately follow the rapture of the church. And as we understand these things, they are real judgments. They are real situations the world will find themselves in. The seven-year tribulation that follows the rapture of the church, where the church, those who are born again, those who are redeemed, have come to faith in Jesus Christ, uh, will be taken away from the the world itself. and The world will move into a time where God pours out his wrath on the earth. We've worked our way through this book as we've understood uh, those things, and we're towards the end now as we see seven years coming to a close. So if you would, look down at your copy of God's Word. Beginning of chapter 18 of Revelation, we saw the economics of the tribulation. Chapter 17 dealt with the religion of the tribulation. And we start in chapter 18 with a very powerful, a very magnificent angel, and he speaks, and he's shining brightly, and perhaps because of one of of those final judgments, Uh, The world is in darkness. It's going to be very important that they listen, and he will draw much attention to himself. And he starts by saying, Babylon the Great has fallen. As it speaks about Babylon, it speaks about a location and a system. And we talked about that last week. That's not unusual for us to understand a location and a system. We know Wall Street. We know Wall Street is a location. We know it's a system. And there are many other examples of that. Hollywood, if you will, uh, a location and a system. And so there are other examples of that. But anyway, Babylon is a location. It's also a system. The angel says, Babylon the Great has fallen. The great attraction of material wealth that's caused men to trade away their own souls, even all through all the ages, finds its greatest day still ahead in the tribulation time. And Scripture tells us that men will indeed sell themselves to be a part of the materialism of the tribulation time. We even know that to be a part of today's World too. We saw that the economics of the tribulation will draw in the kings of the world, right there in the first part of chapter 18. It'll draw the rich, the powerful, those who rule, along with everyone else. By materialism, it will draw them, by sensuality, by selfishness, by hedonism, uh, by vile entertainment and personal satisfaction and self centeredness. Perhaps, Gordon, as you were speaking, uh, talking about what's going on in Iran, uh, my wife and I are both thinking the same thing, perhaps because we the reason why we don't see much movement in Christian circles is because we as a church have been drawn into much of the same thing uh, that our culture has been drawn into. And so we live, as we saw on Sunday mornings, powerless really to accomplish anything of eternal value as long as we entertain 
these types of things in our mind. But uh, anyway, the tribulation time will have uh, attracted to man's system by uh, self-centeredness, really, uh, accumulating to ourselves everything we can accumulate, really based on the axiom, you're worth it, take care of yourself. And so that's going to find its best day in the tribulation, but the angel is going to announce that this system and this place is going to collapse. It's really part of the sin of this time period, where materialism finds its best day. We saw the judgments over the last seven years that are going to destroy this system of Babylon, and it finds a complete destruction in chapter 18, both the city of Babylon and the system of Babylon. So all the things that have brought temporary satisfaction to men all, for all the ages, all the things that uh, we think are so important now are still important then, everything that made life worth living for the unbeliever is going to be gone. Not even the most basic of items will be available. Now, I'd like you to look at verse 15, if you would, chapter 18 of Revelation, and we'll read, actually, some of those passages uh, and move into our new section for tonight. Verse 15 says, The merchants of these things who became rich from her, that's Babylon the place and Babylon the system, uh, so all the things that will go on with materialism, will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, weeping and mourning. And that standing at a distance lets us know it's not just a system that's collapsing, it's a place as well, being destroyed, and they're off a little ways away. And they're looking at the destruction of Babylon. Verse 16, saying, Woe, woe, the great city, she who was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. Verse 17, For in one hour such great uh, wealth has been laid waste. And every shipmaster and every passenger and sailor and as many as make their living by the sea stood at a distance. Verse 18, and were crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like the great city? In other words, we've never seen wealth like this before. We've never seen prosperity like this before. Verse 19, and they threw dust on their heads and were crying out, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she has been laid waste. Let's stop right there. The whole thing is just as sad a scene as we can even imagine. Uh, people throwing dust on their heads. There's great weeping and mourning and crying out for the wealth, for the loss of income, for the loss of things. They're not weeping and mourning for the great destruction on people, which will be really a trademark of the tribulation time. Uh, much uh, wrath poured out from the Lord that, to get men's attention. But they are just weeping and mourning and crying out, alas, alas, woe, woe, all of it's gone. And while everyone on earth is doing that, verse 20 says that everyone on heaven is saying, look at verse 20, rejoice over her. It just shows us once again, as we said last week, how out of touch heaven and earth still are and have always been. That the things we think are most important, heaven doesn't value very highly. And certainly not Babylon the system and Babylon the place. And so it says, rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Stop right there. Now, just to demonstrate the suddenness of this destruction, and we saw that last verse last time and commented on it, but just the suddenness of the destruction um, we see of the city and of the banks and the money and the trade and all, and the finality of that destruction, because I want you to understand, it's not just a slow progression of destruction as we've gone through the tribulation. Certainly, the world has been broken, and we've talked about that as, the, as these... Uh, Judgments have been poured out. The world has been broken. All the tree huggers are going to be in pretty bad shape at the end of all of that. They're worried about a, a spotted owl or a pine tree or, or the, the, uh, the ocean. Uh, all those things are going to be wrecked because you know what? The Lord made the world. He can wreck it if he wants to, and he's going to make it new again. Okay, but he's going to get men's attention. And they, all of this is uh, going on. Heaven says rejoice. And just to demonstrate that it's not just a slow destruction of Babylon, although that is indeed the case, 
but a sudden short-term, right at the end of the tribulation, destruction of the city of Babylon and the entire system. We get an illustration of it in verse 21. And the angel speaks. He's going to illustrate what John is seeing so he understands what's happening. And listen to this illustration. Verse 21, Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. Let's stop right there. That's an illustration of a judgment and not a judgment itself. The word see here... Um, the angel throwing the millstone in is not a judgment on the world. It's an illustration of the judgment on Babylon. That's what I'm trying to say. So uh, the word for sea here is usually used for the Mediterranean Sea. So just an idea of this large angel, powerful angel, takes what looks like a millstone, he throws it into the sea and says that is the type of destruction and that short of time is the type of uh, time frame that the uh, Babylon will be thrown down. And just like a huge stone flung into the sea, no longer able to be used uh, or looked for or found, that's the ending of Babylon. Now let's move on. And we know that uh, in your notes, that illustration refers to a specific destruction that completely consumes Babylon. Very important. A specific destruction. It's not just referring to the slow destruction that occurred during the course of the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. As the Lord has uh, turned over in this process of the tribulation, the title of the earth back to its original owner, back to Jesus himself, that destruction certainly has occurred. And there's been much uh, judgment poured out on the earth. As we know, this is, these days are fixed in the future for the earth. Now, all things go along as perhaps we've always thought they're going along, and that's really how men will console themselves uh, as they reject the offer of salvation through, that comes through Jesus Christ. People just say, well, it hasn't happened yet, and so it probably won't happen, and I'm not really worried about it. But indeed, Scripture tells us, and has given us this book so that we'll know uh, the revealing of Jesus Christ when he comes in his glorious appearing will come directly after this type of judgment to draw attention uh, from men towards God. Now, look at verse 22, if you would. And the sound, let's see what, the angel's going to remind John of what else will be gone as Babylon is destroyed. Let's just kind of see what the world will be like in those just final days before the glorious appearing. The sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeteers will not be heard in you any longer. And no craftsman of any craft will be found in you any longer. And the sound of a mill will not be heard in you any longer. Verse 23, And the light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will not be heard in you any longer. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. So all the nations pulled into the treachery and trickery of this final world system. Not believers, unbelievers who still remain on the earth. But here we find out there's going to be a few other things that are be absent there at the very end. And we can assume these things to be true as we saw the judgments poured out. But here it really verifies that's exactly what it's going to look like. It's a bleak picture for sure. There's not going to be any more music in the world. The party's over on earth. All done. No craftsmen, no artwork, no production of foodstuffs, Scripture says. Uh, no power for anything, natural resources not available, no lamps being lit, none of those things, no more marrying, no more giving in marriage. No one's thinking about those things now. Why is that? Well, because they're just trying to survive. The end time is very near. The glorious appearing of Christ is very near. And by her magic spell, all the nations of the earth were led astray, but the party's done. Verse 24, And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. Just in case you think the punishment doesn't fit the crime, uh, God always remembers, see. He's long-suffering, Scripture says. He takes a long time to bring about wrath. He takes, he's patient for us. Long-term patience. So he allows us to come, he says, to repentance. 
But eventually the patience of the Lord will run out and he will bring his wrath on the earth. And scripture is very clear about that. And he will bring about punishment that fits the crime. As she is destroyed and obvious that this system of man is responsible for unspeakable atrocities against God's people that continue right up until this day. And this system is responsible for all the murders, period. It just doesn't, it just doesn't say murders of prophets and saints. All who've been slain on the earth were as a result of that man's system, system of selfishness and self-centeredness and hate and all the things that go along with man's system have been responsible for all the murders, period. That's the last part of verse 24. The earth is polluted, the scripture says, with innocent blood and the Lord then will take out his wrath on it. Nothing left. The end of everything is man's system has known it, man's system uh, and the great harlot, which is the false church. All done, over. The party's over on earth. You know what happens in chapter 19? The party begins in heaven. Let's look there, all right? Verse 1, chapter 19. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. Now, it's important that you see that early part of verse 1. It's after these things. Metahutos. That's a time stamp. And so let's think about that, okay? After these things, the, uh, John says, I heard something like a loud voice. Well, after what? What's it after? Well, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls are all done. All that's finished. Babylon is completely destroyed. So after those things, but before, these are the things that haven't actually occurred yet, the battle of Armageddon, the glorious appearing of Christ, the setting up of the millennial kingdom. So there is that time stamp. Here we are. We know what's elapsed already. And now we're moving into what is about to come. It is the transition, if you will, uh, from the tribulation to the millennial kingdom. This is the beginning of that transition. Okay, I'll pause right there so you can get that down. Lots of things to write down. But very interesting. I love that timestamp. stamp. We, we watch for those constantly in books like this so that we know some type of chronology of, of the book so we can kind of get it in our mind. Okay, what's occurred? And as a number of these chapters have gone back and filled in things for us and under, let us understand what's been going on in the first half, what's been going on in the second half, all the things that have been set up, this helps us understand now those things are done and after those things are done, John hears this loud voice as this unfolds for him. Uh, and so he says, uh, after these things I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. Now this is a transition. Now there is what going on in heaven? Look at verse uh, look at the next verse, if you would, right at the end of verse 1. Well, there's shouting going on, okay? And there's some hallelujahs being said, and there's six reasons why they're going to say hallelujah in heaven. Uh, we had that timestamp. We know what's happened now. Let's read the rest of the verse. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. That's great, isn't it? That's something we would like to say, isn't it? Um, why is that? Well, this is why number one. Look at verse two. Because his judgments are true and righteous. That's why we say that. That's why we say hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Number one, because his judgments are true and righteous. Why number two? For he has judged the great harlot. That's the false church who was corrupting the earth with her immorality. So all the false religions that have always occurred all the way up until now will find their best day, if you will, in the tribulation. And they've always corrupted the earth and uh, false worship is always uh, equated with immorality. The great harlot's been judged. Uh, why number three? Why would we say hallelujah? Well, look at the end of, uh, if you will, verse two. And he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. Stop right there. And we worship God by making clear who he is, what he's done. That's what they're doing, aren't they? 
That's true worship, worshiping the Lord in spirit and truth. It's not just going about singing songs because you like the song. True worship is in truth and in spirit as you adore the Lord for what he's done. And you mention that, and many of the songs do that very well. And that's how this worship is going. They're mentioning, they're worshiping the Lord, and they're saying what he's done. Letting his attributes be made known. That's what it means to worship the Lord, to glorify him, making his attributes visible. Have you ever said hallelujah in a worship service before? Actually, if you were with us this morning, you sang a song and you said hallelujah a number of times. But how about out loud? Have you ever said hallelujah out loud? You're thinking, oh, I'm a little uncomfortable with doing that, right? Well, you probably ought to get used to it because you're in this throng, okay? You're already here and you're going to be saying hallelujah out loud. Well, you'll do it in heaven, right? You'll feel a lot freer to do that in heaven. But, so don't get nervous. You don't have to do it right now, okay? So a whole series of hallelujahs in a row. Uh, praise the Lord. It's a transliteration of two Hebrew words. It's a great thing. Uh, we only find this four times, all four in the New Testament, all four times right here. Halal means praise or glory or boast. Two words, halal and yah. And yah is meaning uh, Jehovah. And that's Jehovah, that's the shortened form, uh, which is the proper name of the one true God and where we get our word Lord. And so uh, that, of course, means boss or ruler or, or sovereign. He alone has that spot. And so uh, hallelujah is just a a transliteration of two Hebrew words that just shine the spotlight, if you will, on the one who deserves it, the Lord himself. We praise or glory or boast in Jehovah. That's what it means. So in the entire New Testament, only used four times, all right here, and they're just getting warmed up. All right, look at verse 3, if you would. And the second time they said, Hallelujah. Here's why, number four. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. Let's stop right there. Uh, there is always going to be a reminder of the end of the rebellion. I think that's interesting. The scripture says that over and over again, that there will be always a reminder of some kind throughout all of eternity of the end of the rebellion. And I think that that's a good... I think that um, as we think about why the problem of evil is in the world, there's lots of great arguments for that. And I think that it just shows that men will carry evil out as far as they possibly can. But I think as we close out all of this and the judgment is closed out and then we have that thousand-year millennial reign of Christ... Uh, But we see that the smoke will always go up. That'll be a reminder of just how bad rebellion gets, just how far it's going to go if the restrainer is pulled away. And the tribulation time, really, and the time immediately following the millennial reign of Christ, really justify the Lord. In the tribulation, the restrainer is pulled off, if you will, and men just go as hard as they can away from the Lord. And then we get into the millennial reign of Christ, and we have Satan locked away for a thousand years. And what happens at the end? Men show their true colors again, don't they? And so the Lord's vindicated. Even without Satan himself tempting and doing his work, men will still turn away and walk away from the Lord. But the smoke is going to go up. I don't understand exactly how that will occur in uh, in the Lord remaking the world and all of that. But anyway, it says her smoke rises up forever and ever. So somewhere there will be a reminder of the rebellion. Verse 4, And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen. They agree. This represents the church, the 24 elders, we talked about this before, speaks of the church. Uh, We are there in that throng worshiping, and they say amen, they agree, so be it. And then we see hallelujah, so they say amen, hallelujah, you say amen, hallelujah. Why number five, look at verse five. And a voice came from the throne saying, give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, small and great. So let's look who's there, the bondservants. That's someone who has decided to serve. We see the word bondservant used to describe for us 
uh, someone who's not serving for pay, he's not serving because he wants to, he's serving because he is submitted and desires and loves his master. The bond servants are there. Those are true believers. That's who it's describing. We, we worship the Lord and obey him and submit to him because he is who he is and we love him. Those who fear him, that again describes believers, doesn't it? Because although as we mature in our relationship with Jesus, uh, with the Lord himself, uh, through Jesus, we come to a love relationship. Perfect love casts out fear. And so we have that interaction that makes us run into his presence to worship him. But regardless of how sweet the worship is, we always know, don't we, that in, if we walk in disfellowship with him, we sink far enough, we're going to land on a foundation called fear, aren't we? Because the Lord has the right to deal with our sin any way he wishes as believers. And so we know that even though we walk in a love relationship with him in obedience, we know that if we go down far enough, we get down to that foundation, which is we understand that the Lord has the right and is sovereign and has the right to deal with us as he pleases. So those who fear him, and uh, let's comment on who won't be there, okay? We won't, we, won't, we won't have anybody who just believes God exists, okay? No one is going to be there who's just marginally, just, uh, well, I'll go to church, but it's not a big deal. Those who don't love the word and don't love the saints and don't love the things of God, these things are fruit of not knowing Christ. Those folks will not be there. No one who's tried to justify why they don't believe in God because they had this bad experience or that bad experience or this person said this to me or whatever. Okay? All that's going to be done, right? The unrighteous will not stand in the judgment. That's what Psalm 1, 1 through 6 tells us, doesn't it? That means you're not going to stand up and give an excuse for why you didn't do what the Lord wanted you to do. Okay? He makes the rules of the universe. He calls the shots. He gives us a long time to repent. If we turn away from that type of repentance, then we can do that because Christ in His grace has given you the freedom to choose. But if you sin, the soul that sins shall surely what? Die. And you'll pay for that. Uh, your own self-will with your own death. Okay? It's not will- God's not willing that any perish. But all come to the knowledge of repentance. All come to the knowledge of salvation. So He desires and has offered salvation to you. And so my encouragement, of course, is to receive Him now when he's your savior, and not wait until he'll be your judge. Okay? Let's get back to the text. Those people who won't be there, those who just believe God exists, those who have marginal faith, not impacted by his holiness, whatever, whatever reason why you didn't want to do it, those folks are not going to be in that throng worshiping the Lord. And the loud voice of a great multitude shouting in verse 1 is nothing to this next verse. Look at verse 6. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. Now we're talking, aren't we? The best concert you've ever been to, shuck your chest with all the subwoofers, is not going to compare to this worship. Okay? So if you don't like loud noises in worship, once again, if you don't like to say hallelujah, get ready. And if you don't like loud noises in worship, get ready. Okay? Because it's going to be loud there. Mighty peals of thunder saying hallelujah. Again, hallelujah reason number six. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, what? That kind of sums up everything, doesn't it? He's always reigned, hasn't he? But he's reigned with grace in the church age, hasn't he? And he's allowed people to come to him. He's extended the plan of salvation over and over again. But he reigns, period. And all the rebellion with, with Satan and the, and the demons and all of that, they've, you know, all the coup that has happened there, they've never removed themselves from his authority. They've just had their time on earth. But he's been, a, he's been sovereign over all those things. But he reigns. And so they say hallelujah. Verse 1, hallelujah. Why? His judgments are true. His judgments are right. He's judged man's system which corrupted the earth. He's taken out vintage on it, vintage, uh, vengeance on it. Verse 3, hallelujah. Why? Uh, there's always going to be a reminder of how bad the rebellion really is because there's going to be smoke going up forever and ever. In verse 4, we have a hallelujah again. Why? The church understands that the punishment fits the crime and says amen, hallelujah. 
And verse 6, hallelujah, why? As the words of Handel's Messiah say, our Lord God, the Almighty, reigneth. Amen. Verse 7, let us rejoice. Chapter 19, verse 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Three portions of the relationship there. Jesus picked out His bride long ago on the cross. And he promised himself to her, that's the church, and we're told to be ready and to remain pure. The church was presented to the groom at the rapture, and now the ceremony is taking place with the supper. And that's cool stuff to think about, isn't it? And that's reality for us. That sets out in the future still as we wait for that day. Verse 8, it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. So she's allowed to clothe herself in wonderful garments. Now, I'd like you to see or what these wonderful garments come from. Because this is important for now, okay? The fine linen is what? What's it say? The righteous acts of the saints. Isn't that wonderful? In God's sovereignty, the fine linen that you're clothed with at the marriage is the righteous acts that you do now. How that works out is just an amazing thing to me. But that's how it's referred, that's what it's referred to. The fine linen that's clothed, that, clothes, that clothes the bride is the righteous acts of the saints. So how do you make sure you're going to be clothed wonderfully for this ceremony, beloved? Pretty straightforward, isn't it? The righteous acts of the saints. Prompted by the Holy Spirit as you act according to the Lord's will. And it's a marvelous clothing that you receive. All because of the graciousness of the bridegroom. Verse 9, Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Stop right there. Who are these people? Well, let's figure it out. It's not the church, right? Because she's what? She's the bride. She's going to be there for sure, right? These are people who obviously are believers, so where do they come to faith? Well, some who came to faith before the church and some who came to faith after the church was raptured, so the tribulation martyrs. Those are the ones who were invited to this marriage supper of the Lamb, this consummation of this relationship. And he said to me, let's continue in verse 9, he said to me, these are true words of God. So don't doubt that this will take place, John. Don't doubt, church, that this will take place. These are the true words of God, as if he had to say that. Uh, certainly we understand that, don't we? Verse 10, Then I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, Do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. I serve with you. Understand, your brethren and I all have the same job. We're messengers of this marvelous truth. So don't worship me, the angel says. Worship God. Now, he did that before chapter 1, and he was told not to do it. He's going to do it again in chapter 22. He's told not to do it. But we can sympathize a little bit with John, can't we? He's standing before these marvelous angels that are mighty in all aspects. And then they declare these awesome things. These are the true words of God. And the Lord God, the Almighty, reigneth. Uh, it tells who's invited to the marriage supper. He's telling who, what you're going to be clothed in and how that occurs. And John's just overcome, isn't he? He falls down to worship. The angel says, don't worship me. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren. I serve you. That's awesome. That's my job. That's been my job since the creation of men. The angel says, that's what I'm doing. I serve you. And all those who hold the testimony of Jesus worship God. So understand that you have uh, those who have been given to serve you, beloved. Now, for the testimony of Jesus, and I love this last section here. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Stop right there. Everything that was ever said about the kingdom of God, past, present, future, 
was always really talking about the reality of whom? Jesus and everything that he is. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. All that's ever been said about how mighty God is, all that's ever been said about the kingdom to come, everything that's been said about judgment, everything that's been said about salvation, all that's ever been proclaimed in the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus himself. He is everything, isn't he? He is everything. So, we're out of time. Everyone is getting ready for heaven. Everybody's receiving clothes to go to the kingdom. And this is going to be the consummation of the marriage. Heaven is all astir. Everybody's worshiping and it's loud up there and people are saying hallelujah. And everybody's looking around excited. We're going to the kingdom. But you're going to have to come next time if you want to talk about that. All right? And so we'll do that as we meet next time. This is our third Sunday in a row that we've been in the Word. The first three Sundays normally are reserved for teaching on Sunday night. Fourth Sunday night is Acts 2.46. That's our scheduled fellowship time as a church. We're going to meet downstairs at 6.30 in the evening so that we can get to know each other better, meet each other's needs, break bread together. And so that's our desire to do that on the fourth Sunday. This month also holds a fifth Sunday night, and every month that holds a fifth Sunday is a PTA service, Praise, Testimony, Adoration. The worship band that plays on Sunday mornings play on, plays on that night, PTA night. And I think that Alex is going to take a few requests from you if you'd like to uh, help us put together that, uh, that worship time in, in testimony, praise, and song. All right? Let's be dismissed in a word of prayer. You can stand if you would, and we'll uh, be dismissed. I encourage you to greet one another, and I welcome you. I'm glad that you guys are here. Thank you for coming to witness the baptisms, and I hope it's enriching for you. And uh, let us know that you were here if you would, and uh, let's give the Lord praise. Lord, we thank you that uh, we have an opportunity to read your word. We thank you for... Even as we look at the things which are future, there's still a word for us today. Lord, I pray we will be about the righteous acts of the saints because we're the only ones who can do them. We're not going to be caught up in a powerless uh, lifestyle that's consumed by the things and love of the world. Even though we have to live in the world, we have to provide for our needs, and you know that. You know that we need these things, Matthew tells us. And you'll provide richly all those things we seek first the, your kingdom and your righteousness. So we desire to be those types of people. Thank you for Jesus, who is the spirit of prophecy. Thank you that he is all and all. We do praise the Lord. And it's in his name, Jesus' marvelous name, that we pray all of this. And all God's people said, Amen.